Hi, I'm Dominic Norberg. And I'm Duncan McNichol. And we are doing a slightly different podcast episode today. Yep, um, we should say the name of the podcast. Okay, that's fine with yeah. me. <laughs> Not exactly rocket science. So yeah, um, like you said, a slightly different episode today. This is the origin story. I like that in comic books. I like that issue 24 is how Spider-Man got bitten by a radioactive spider or, mm. you know, issue 37 is how Superman is actually an alien. Mm. Um, okay. Seems like slightly weak source for why he's a superhero. It's not as creative as bitten by a radioactive spider or hit by gamma rays. The idea of, of today's episode is that I'm going to talk to you and you're going to talk to me. Yay. And we're going to find out what we do. I'm nodding. Yeah. <laughs> Good podcast narration there. Well done. I'm so, smiling now. Should we start with you or should we start with me? Let's start with you. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I keep saying I'm a physicist and I'm, I used to be a chemistry teacher. I th kind of think I might be more of a chemist than a physicist some days. But yeah, so I went to university. I was primed. I was going to do physics. I Why? Because I liked it at school, I think. Um, I like the maths. I like the logic. I like that, that there is an answer to things. It made logical sense to me. Um, but yeah, so I, I went to university to study physics, but I actually went to a university that does a course called Natural Sciences. So the study of physics there in first year involved physics, but also other subjects. So I ended up taking um, material science, which was really interesting, and chemistry, which I was good at. And then it turned out that I was quite bad at physics or not mm. even bad at physics but I just I struggled with it and I hadn't struggled much at school so it was a bit of a shock I think some people get this you know while they're still at school they go from one level to another and suddenly everything gets a bit harder than they were expecting and it can really put you off and it really put me off so after first year I dropped the physics and after second year I dropped the material science um, and so I ended up with a degree in chemistry. Is that how it works in that degree that you kind of shed the dead weight more yeah, and more exactly yeah but so you've you, hopefully you gained meaningful you insight along the way in the other yeah that's, subjects that's the idea it gives you a sort of broad base from which to understand things i mean it was good for me i learned about quantum mechanics in my first year in physics in my second year in material science and in my third and fourth years in chemistry which means that i now mostly don't understand it instead of completely not understanding it mm. <clears throat> which is also why sometimes it can be good to fail exams oh absolutely yeah yeah, yeah. failure is, is how we learn so after that, I definitely knew that I didn't want to be a researcher. Don't want to do a PhD and sort of didn't really know what I did want to do. Hold on, there was a bit of a jump. So you did chemistry in third year and then bam, no research. Okay, so in fourth year, because I did a four-year course, which is an integrated master's course. And so the fourth year involved doing my own research working as part of a group, much more self-directed, but ended up doing a project that I wasn't that interested in it. it didn't really capture my attention um, and so I really struggled with that self-directed research aspect could that have been an age thing as well I mean quite possibly yeah I would turned 20 just before starting that year which is I think is is young I think especially because I went from Scottish school to English university so it's there's, there's a very slight age difference about a six month age difference on average so I was quite young But I came out of that certain that I didn't want to work in that environment and I didn't want to, to do that research. But yeah, and then so I came out, didn't really know what I wanted to do, settled on teaching um, because it was something that I'd been doing idly, as you do. And given that I had a degree in chemistry, I was set up to be a chemistry teacher. Hasn't you done tutoring during your during your degree? Yeah, during my degree um, and a bit afterwards as well. Um, there was a period there where I worked odd jobs i worked in a shop and, and that you know that sort of thing what um, kind of shop that's always the interesting one a video game shop which oh. sounds like it would be really interesting 
and, and fun and you get to play lots of video games but actually it was just rubbish I wouldn't recommend it that's a bit of a letdown yeah sorry yeah. about that which is why I was so pleased to go into the teacher training um, so back to university became a teacher realised that I'd already because I'd done a year of physics at university I could probably do a little bit of a top up and end up able to teach physics which would be you know another mm. string to my bow that, that whole idea so I did a little course with the Open University I don't know other people's experience of the Open University I found it addictive um, I really enjoyed mm. it. It's great. You get knowledge in the post and then you sort of sort through it and work out what you think, uh, what you think's going on. And then you talk to someone over the internet about that. Sometimes you go and meet them in person. It was a very different way of, of doing university. How much but, time did that take? So the, my intention was, was for it to be a year. Um, and just to get this course, tick a box and say, I can teach physics now. But like I say, I found it addictive. So I ended up all told, spending about six years doing courses at the Open University. Um, So that covers my teacher training. After my teacher training, when I was a tutor full-time, I I had a weird thing. I actually ended up starting my first teaching job in November, which is a very strange time to start a teaching job. Uh, But by the end of that year, I was was kind of... I'd got into the swing of things. And I was... I carried on with my Open University degree until after I'd been teaching for a while. And yeah, so I taught... Uh, actually taught physics first. My first teaching job was physics, and then and then taught some chemistry because the the general teaching council for Scotland, with people in charge of saying whether or not you're a teacher, told me that I had to teach some chemistry. So I went to another school and taught some chemistry. You had to teach chemistry. Yeah, because because my chemistry degree came before my physics degree. I was a chemistry teacher, so the fact that I could teach physics and had a physics degree didn't make me a physics teacher because I'd done my teacher training as a chemistry teacher. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like I say, bureaucracy is, is uh, it's a bit more complicated than real life. Uh, be that as it may. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so, uh, so I had to teach some chemistry, and so I went and taught some chemistry. Um, and then while I was doing that, and while I was doing my Open University degree in physics, I realised that actually physics wasn't as hard as I thought, and I wasn't bad at it. I just wasn't great at it. And it was interesting, and you know, if you can do something and you find it interesting... I feel like that's something to pursue. Were you good at teaching? I didn't feel like I was good at teaching at the beginning. By the end, I felt like I, I was pretty good. I, I miss it sometimes. I miss um, getting to the end of an academic year and not having any kids leaving saying, you know, thanks for being a great teacher or, or whatever. Um, basically, mm. I miss the adulation. Mm. Um, no one gives me enough praise now. <laughs> we'll, we'll deal with this after the recording. Yeah, okay. I'll praise the heck out of you. Excellent, excellent. Um, but yeah, no, and so, so that's that's kind of what led me to the PhD, um, which is why I started my PhD at the grand old age of 30. Whoa. I know, old man of you. But no, I think, I, I honestly think, especially given what you were saying about the age that I did my um, first bit of self-directed research, I think, because that's basically 10 years, or near enough. And yeah, I think I think it made a huge amount of difference. I think I'm, I'm much much more able to to deal with things and i think also having been out in the real world really helps as well and i think that's me almost up to date beyond what i actually do now and i never know how to describe what i do well the name is really cool so as listeners maybe know um we sit in the same office sometimes yep and sometimes we also hang out outside of the office so i know that duncan is sometimes working on ghost imaging yeah, it does sound cool. Sadly, it sounds cooler than it actually is. So ghost imaging. <clears throat> I'm a man with a beard. I'm going to start there. 
Um, my beard. Yeah, we're, we're both we're both bearded, bearded, in bearded, something like that. But yes, we both have beards, um, which means that the bottom half of my face is darker than the top half of my face. Yes. Right. Um, if you imagine uh, taking a beam of light, splitting it in two, and then um, tracking that light back and forth over an object, say my face. Okay, so like a spotlight, a very, very fine spotlight. Okay, so splitting it in two is like 50% of the photons go this way and 50% go the other way. Yeah, exactly. So it's not like a prism splitting up wavelengths. No, no, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right, yeah. So we can do this with a single wavelength of light. And in fact, I do do it with a single wavelength of light. Um, okay. So far, it's been 514 nanometer light. Thank you. Um, which is green. But yeah, so you take the light, you split it in two, and you track it, and you make sure that they're both tracking the same, um, which you do by having the, the piece of equipment that does the tracking back and forth over the object before you split the light. So when I hear tracking, I think following, but you mean like steering the beam, essentially. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I mean, literally just moving the beam back and, back and forth across right. the object. And what you can say is that if you record the position of one of the beams, then from that, you know the position of the other beam. Yes. But you haven't actually measured the other beam. So the other beam is then the one that you shine across my face. Mm -hmm. And when it's in the top half of my face, you get lots of light back because mm -hmm. the top half of my face is quite white. And then when you shine it across the bottom half of my face, you get very little light back because it's green light and my beard is orange. So there's not a lot of overlap there. So not much light is reflected back. Right. Um, and so what you can do is you can see the change in the amount of light that's reflected back from the beam that's interacted with my face. And Sorry, you... <laughs> you're mentioning green. I just imagine you with a green hat now. You'd be the Irish flag or the Indian flag. I would be the Indian flag. Well, I think to be the Indian flag, I'd have to have a big wheel on my nose. That can be done. That can be done. We should do that. <laughs> Go on. Um, so uh, you do your scanning and you can see that there's lots of light coming back from my face in when the beam of light is in the top half and not too much light coming back when it's in the bottom half so from that you can infer that the top half of my face is light the bottom half of my face is dark mm -hmm. but the clever thing is that you've done that without measuring the position of the beam that's on my face mm -hmm. and without measuring the intensity of the beam that isn't on my face yes so if you use either of those measurements by themselves you don't get anything mm -hmm. no information at all If yeah. you use both of them at the same time and the correlation between them, then you can work out how the image worked. And so the reason it's called ghost imaging is because the light that has touched my face hasn't been measured positionally. Mm -hmm. So we're, it's like imaging using ghost photons that have never right. seen where we are. That's a very basic overview. It, it gets a lot more complicated than that, as you can imagine. And that's more in how you put the information together to make a image so that is a job that we give to someone else because i don't understand how image processing works um, <clears throat> exactly <laughs> don't understand it but no in in terms of what we actually do we don't use a scanning beam of light we use a pattern of light and then a different pattern and a different pattern and a different pattern and each one gives us more and more and more information which it turns out is more efficient so we can acquire images faster um Although the best image that I've taken, the most recognizable image that I've taken is A, not that recognizable, and B, took a week in the lab to acquire, so it's not that fast. Um, What if you did it again, how fast would it be? About a week. It, it just takes that long. Yeah, I would say at best we're looking 20 years out on this being used for anything. Great. Yeah. We'll yeah. be in our 50s. Yeah. Sweet. It's, yeah, it's going to be good times. Do you think you'll always be sticking around in Scotland? I 
can see that. Yeah, I'm. I, so I, I don't sound it, um, as has been pointed out by everyone I've ever spoken to. But uh, I'm, I'm from here. I'm from from Musselburgh, and yeah, I just I like to it our there. international or far away from Edinburgh listeners. Musselburgh is just outside of Edinburgh, yeah. basically. Uh, so on a technicality, it's outside of Edinburgh. If you if you drew a map based on a satellite image, you would say, oh, that must be part of Edinburgh because there's no actual gap. But mm. people from Musselburgh hold, hold firm to the belief that Musselburgh is a completely separate state. But yeah, so I grew up there and uh, my family are here and I, yeah, I just, I like it here. So I think, I think I'm going to stick around probably. Um, who knows what I'll end up doing. The world is my oyster without having to actually leave. Um, I mean, I leave occasionally. Except the man from Musselburgh. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, dear. <laughs> Crustacean jokes, that's what we've come to. Right, I think it's time to talk to you, Dominic. I think it's Yay. time to talk to you. Yay! So, Dominic Norberg, uh, who, who are you? So, Dominic Origins, where do I start? I'll probably start with why do I sound the way I sound. My mum's German, mm-hmm. my dad's... His parents were Swedish. He was born in Argentina, but he grew up in Australia, and that's where I was born. So... Listeners won't be able to see, but you just had to use all of the fingers on one hand to to work through your your nationality there. Right. So I was born in Australia, but I grew up in Germany. Right. So at home we spoke English with a Swedish and Australian accent. And over time, I guess I had German school English as well. Yeah. I did Erasmus in Ireland, and now I'm here in Scotland. So you can imagine... That's quite a lot of tugs in different directions. And obviously, because American cultural imperialism works very well and effectively, it really does. I've probably watched a lot of American TV shows and films and yeah. so on. Yeah. So there's a bit of that as well. At least I say film instead of movie, but that's, that's like one of the last bastions of, um, of my own English. So anyway, I went to school in Germany, and from the age of seven, I wanted to be an airline pilot. Airline pilot. Yeah. I mean, got who this, wouldn't? Yeah, I got this big book for my seventh birthday. Mein großes Buch über das Fliegen. My big book about flying. Wow. And somewhere halfway through, there was this picture of the cockpit of an Airbus A320. Mm-hmm. I was like, that looks pretty cool. Yeah. I and mean, because I was already financially savvy at the age of seven, <laughs> I asked my dad, Dad, do, do pilots earn enough money? You know, like, is, that, is that a reasonable... Yeah job because I mean yeah, you wouldn't want to sign up if, if it was like yeah I think I probably knew that a clown in a circus wouldn't make yeah. much money or something like that you know so I asked my dad dad do pilots earn enough money you know like do them is it good to make a living and he was like yeah definitely and I was like sweet good this is what you I want to do get to play with the big toys you get the money I mean yeah yeah and then um, what was it 13 years later mm-hmm. I applied with Lufthansa mm-hmm. and for various reasons that didn't work out and um, sad times yeah so there were a few rounds of tests that I had to go mm-hmm. to Hamburg for and on the second round and the the end of the first day they kind of like have the first vetting mm-hmm. and that's when they said yeah wasn't enough and that was pretty much it you know Ooh. it wasn't good enough that or something. is unpleasant yeah then I had like a few weeks or a few months to figure out what I wanted to do because that was in April and the new semester started in September or October 
So I thought, like, I'm not going to waste more time because yeah. I had to wait a bit for those tests. So, yeah, then kind of could choose between medicine, economics, and electrical engineering, or, kind of, or engineering in general were the mm. three choices that came up. I didn't want to do natural sciences because um, I think I liked the idea of applying science rather than that's, um, that is fair. The work that I'm doing isn't going to be used for anything for decades, um, and that, that turns a lot of people off. And I, yeah. can, I can completely understand. Which is weird, because so many things that were used now, quite naturally, were discovered, and people didn't even... Well, first they didn't understand them. Then, I get, like the question, what would you use it for, didn't even dawn on people. Yeah. It was clear that you would never be able to use anything. Anyway, in the end, I decided against medicine, because I thought... Oof, that's a tough job. If you want to do that, you probably really should want to do it. Yeah, yeah, you don't yeah. want to stumble into medicine. Yeah. Really. And my brother had already done economics, so I thought, like, <laughs> uh, I'll do something else. Yeah. And then it was engineering, and engineering, I really liked maths, and I liked some level of abstraction and a little bit of a challenge. Yeah. And from what I heard around me, people said, well, that kind of implies more electrical engineering rather than mechanical or civil engineering mm -hmm. and that proved to be true like if you want to do electrical engineering think if you like maths and if you don't give it another <laughs> give it another Stay thought clear. then after a year at university i thought well okay i've survived a year and what will i what will i do with this degree and i kind of homed in within a f i don't know within a few days or weeks this topic had burnt itself into my mind of doing um, prosthetics, particularly upper limb prosthetics, like oh. artificial hands and arms. That's and quite specific. Yeah, it's very specific. Um, and I think it was half a year later, an old colleague of mine lost his hand actually in an accident. Really? So that kind of just drove it home a bit more. Yeah. Even. I was going to ask if that was, that was where it had come from in the first place, but I no, guess No, it was the it was other way around actually. I didn't do much with that for very long, but I kind of drifted towards um, control engineering and biomedical engineering throughout mm -hmm. the degree. Then ended up in Edinburgh for a for an internship with a prosthetics company. Well, Livingston actually. Yeah. So that was um, that was great. That was good fun, um, and I think that kind of that cemented this idea of not just wanting to stick in the R&D department, mm -hmm. but what I got to do there was also to work with the people that were our so-called patient ambassadors. Oh, so okay. people who'd lost a hand or an arm and worked with this company, Touch Bionics, and got their hands for free. Oh, okay. But I, th I think that's how it works. And in turn, they came up to test new devices yeah. and they'd uh, tag along to trade fairs and stuff like that and demonstrate... So that was very valuable feedback. And the feedback wasn't only in usability, you know, like, oh, the grip is too strong or, I don't know, this hurts my hand. But the most valuable feedback was actually that in the R&D department, you have, your, you have your systems mindset. So you think in systems. You think in, if I press button A then this happens, and if I press button B, then this happens, and yep. if I reverse the order, then something else happens, and you can kind of map out in your head how a system works, if this, then that, and if I mean, more complex this, then a more complex that. 
you can map out in your head. Exactly. I, I don't think I could. But so, so that's the mindset that you want to build something and you think of, like, if you're doing any coding, you think of how the flow of a program is. Yeah. And if you have this user interaction with the program, how does that trickle down the different functions that you've coded into yeah. your program? And so the systems mindset comes very naturally. But then you have to describe it to someone who's de like from a completely different professional background. Or maybe yeah. you have to describe it to a 12-year-old kid with, with no technical background whatsoever. Yeah. And, and a different approach to understanding things. So your technology can be really good, yeah. or it can look really good, but the, the usability of the device and the comfort at which people use it, like even if your device is great and it didn't take much training, if you don't get people across the first obstacle, yeah. then they won't use it and then they won't get better at using it. Yeah. And then your device is useless. I think this, 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 the second thing that we had to, or that I had to learn and that Some people in the R&D department did really well and others would rather steer clear from is um, the fanciest feature doesn't help if people are not interested. Yeah. And you can really pride yourself again, like, oh, look how, I don't know, say you have, you can program 20 different grips into your hand, mm -hmm. but they're, they're all useless in everyday life or it's, it's difficult to get yeah. to them or... Um, you've, at the cost of having those 20 grips, the three essential ones don't work quite as well or as fast or they are, Takes there's something wrong with them. them. And you want to, you just want to have like tons of features in mm. it. Um, but actually the patient feedback is, no, this is, I don't need this or I don't want this or it, it distracts me. Yeah. Yeah. That kind of stuff. Well, see, this yeah. is the sort of thing that I would never have thought about. And I guess you didn't either until yeah. you were in that environment. Yeah, and that's, that was a really good thing of working with patients rather than staying in the R&D department mm. and hearing from mostly the physiotherapists yeah. who were working with people and saying, oh, patients didn't like this. Yeah, so that was really good. Then, yeah. <clears throat> um, then I went back to uni to finish my master's mm -hmm. and... Um, That was good as well. So where was that? That was that was in mm -hmm. Aachen. Ah, okay. Um, at the at the university with the easy name, the Rheinisch Westfälische Technische Hochschule Aachen, R W T H R W T H. So I'm not even going to try. Yeah, I, yeah. Know, I, I briefly considered it, but I'm not. I'm no. So I stayed in biomedical engineering then towards the end of my master's and did a project on rehabilitation robotics. Mm -hmm. So we were using an industrial robot um, to basically reduce the workload of physiotherapists. Oh. So um, it was based around something called neuroplasticity, mm -hmm. which basically just means that your brain has the capacity to change. And that after a stroke, if you've lost some motor function, you can relearn it. Your brain kind of rewires. Yeah. But for that to happen, well, you should start early. You have to do the same movement again and again. Mm -hmm. So basically what happens is your brain has lost the connection to your muscles. Okay. And but your eyes can still see what your hand is doing, and if it's just lying around, that's just what it does. But if a physiotherapist in this case will take your arm and kind of lead it to your mouth, for example, to mm -hmm. your hair, you know, you put a you put a mug into the hand, and then um, 
guide the hand back up to your mouth and back to a table and up and down again. And you do that, I don't know, a hundred times each day mm -hmm. for months. Then over time, you slowly regain more and more control again of the arm. Brains are amazing. Yeah, they're really cool. And, and that's so, bonkers. so that's you, but you want to do different movements. You want to do like wiping a table, or yeah. you want to do reaching up to a shelf, or you want to do basically, you want to cover the entire range of motion that your arm would have. Yeah. Um, and I've yet to see a publicly funded healthcare system or a population that could afford that kind of medical attention. Yeah. Um, sort of one on one. One on one for hours each yeah. day. However, there are loads of countries that could afford rehabilitation robotics. Yeah. And that was kind of the idea that you don't you don't replace the physiotherapist, but you have the physiotherapist train the system. Yeah. And then um, you attach the arm or the hand to this robot and the robot guides. Yeah. Because um, doing the same thing over and over and over again is what robots are good at. Yeah, it kind of it screams robots. Yeah. Yeah, so basically that's what my master's thesis was about, to create sensors that you could put onto arms that would measure muscle activity and would give you, would, would feed back to a machine the position of an arm mm -hmm. in three-dimensional space. Wow, that's really cool. How did yeah. you go from that to this? I wanted to stay in biomedical engineering, and the next thing that I found in Edinburgh that sounded really interesting was then Proteus. And... For Proteus, you do something... Yeah, okay. So in Proteus, to all those who don't know, yeah. um, we do uh, endomicroscopic imaging. Yeah. Which, and so endoscopy is basically you want to visualize stuff inside, inside the body. And, yeah, endo. Yeah. And, uh, but we don't want to do endoscopy. We want to do endomicroscopy. So we don't only want to see in the body. We want to see in the body at a microscopic level. Yeah. And so we use very thin optical fiber bundles yeah. um, that go into the lung, for example. And those optical fiber bundles have a few properties that make imaging through them a bit of a challenge. Yeah. And so I've been working on the hardware that, so that that imaging gets a bit better and also on the image processing. Yeah. And actually, that's maybe like that, that takes us back to engineering versus science, mm -hmm. is that what I'm doing isn't particularly fancy like the image processing that I'm doing yeah but I'm making it work in real time yeah so and so it's more a, it's a question of implementation yeah. so where it takes me a week to acquire a single still image what you're doing I, I mean I don't know what frame rate you're targeting but it has to do everything that it needs to do to the image 50 milliseconds in 50 milliseconds which yeah. is absolutely bonkers and, and then if you I think that's that's where I kind of sometimes get into physics a little bit is that you have to understand the properties behind an LED yeah. and behind optics to make that system um, even better. So image processing, if you put crap into image processing, yeah. it's still you get you might get slightly improved crap, but if you put good stuff into image processing, you can get really good images. Yeah. So that's why only focusing on one area and just trying to improve that. Um, is a bit short-sighted. Yeah. So that's why it's good that we kind of target all the like all the components along that imaging path. Yeah. Because that I mean that is kind of process's thing, isn't it? It's it's absolutely every stage. There's there's work going on, new work 
you know, novel techniques, novel um, processes to, to bring yeah. it all together into something yeah. that's that's just better. Yeah. And what I'm what I'm particularly interested now uh, in terms of imaging is to image blood vessels in the lung, mm-hmm. um, and they're like various things that could be seen if we could if we could see blood vessels in the lung and immune cells mm-hmm. so if we you know if we painted them in with some dye um, if you look at transplanted lungs for example if a transplanted lung is rejected by the body T cells will accumulate lung blood vessels mm-hmm. in the lung so that's like an early marker but the only time that people see it currently is when the lung has been rejected right. so that's like either a new lung has been found in time or yeah. so you can do a biopsy or a yeah you do um, wow. like take a tissue sample and see all the T-cells or it's in a post-mortem that yeah. you see oh the lung is oh, full look, of T-cells yeah. and and this if you know that a lung is being rejected that's when a doctor can take measures to you know adjust medication and so yeah. on but at the moment there's not much um not much scope to diagnose those things in time but only after the fact so that would be one one area where it would be interesting to particularly see blood vessels yeah. in the lung that sounds yeah so this is broad topic and it will influence other topics of my research as well but uh, doubt kind of homing in on the blood vessels cool cool I found that inter- well, I found half of that interesting. I found half of that just talking about myself, and that's always boring. But it's strange. I feel very similar. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, I, I think between us, we enjoyed the whole thing. And yeah, uh, next time we'll be back uh, with a, with a medical researcher as usual. But um, but yeah, keep listening. Um, the website is not exactly rocketscience.fm. Um, well done. Thanks. Thanks. I'm praising I've been, you. I've been practicing. Oh, thank you. I need praise. Bye-bye. Is that already recording? Yeah. <laughs>